I'm John Hanson Flashin, editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. It is my pleasure today to talk with Dr. Michael Rosenblatt, Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer, Merkin Company. Dr. Rosenblatt's article entitled, How Academia and the Pharmaceutical Industry Can Work Together, is published in the February issue of Annals ATS. I'll be asking Dr. Rosenblatt several questions about this important issue. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real opportunity for me, John. Here's the first of five questions that I'll be asking you today. On February 11th, the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services released its final rule implementing the Physician Payment Sunshine Act. The act calls upon CMS to create a publicly accessible online compendium of payments and other transfers of value from pharmaceutical and medical device companies to physicians and teaching hospitals. Michael, in the long run, will the act promote or impede drug discovery and development relative to the regulatory climate of the last several years? Well, let me begin, John, by saying you know that uh, Merck has been fully compliant with the Sunshine Act, and we've actually supported these principles now even before uh, the act uh, went into effect. Um, we had taken a number of voluntary steps to enhance transparency for several years um, preceding the Sunshine Act, uh, and um, we're, uh, we believe that these interactions between physicians and um, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, especially in the area of R&D, are very important. We're very proud of the work that we do together with physicians. We think it's essential. And uh, in the physicians that I've spoken to who work with us, I believe they share the same sentiment. They are also very proud of it. It's hard to know what the impact of this act will actually have. If, it, uh, if increasing the um, visibility of such activities helps enhance the public's trust uh, around the interaction between physicians and companies, uh, that's a good thing. If it increases an understanding of what companies like ours do in terms of inventing new drugs for unmet medical needs, that would also be a good thing. But, you know, um, how individuals will make choices around this, um, it's, it's not clear. I do know that we've had inquiries and we've had some people who um, have uh, kind of hesitated because uh, they know that such interactions um, not only become public knowledge, but the exact dollar amounts involved are also public knowledge. And so some people may scale back their participation. Um, we'll just have to see how it goes. Thank you. In your article, you touched on Merck's Caliber Initiative in Southern California. Presently, there are more than 20 major long-term pharma-academic partnerships worldwide that link industry with universities in common pursuit of drug discovery. 
Do you see this as the dominant avenue for new drug developments in the future? Um, you know, I, th I have been emphasizing both in my talk and the article that I um, submitted how important this connection and collaboration are between uh, academia and, in and industry. Uh, John, I'm not sure I would use the word dominant avenue uh, for new drug discovery and development because uh, in the end, we, um, we will remain reliant on our own research engine. But this is a very important supplement, these kinds of collaborations, and uh, are very promising. And as you said, there are several of them that are out there now that I would view as experiments that are being tested. So one experiment that we are testing is Caliber, which is the California Institute for Biomedical Research. Uh, it's an independent, not-for-profit, I would say, incubator uh, that Merck funds and we help to guide. And what it does is it provides the infrastructure, uh, all the infrastructure that would be um, needed by an uh, investigator in the early steps of translational research. So typically things that you wouldn't find inside an academic lab, uh, but you would find inside a pharmaceutical company. And the way it works is that any investigator anywhere in the world, and I want to stress anywhere in the world, can apply to Caliber. And if they have uh, a target or if they have a lead chemical structure or something else that's very promising for translational research, they can apply. And then if they're selected, they're given access to um, all of this infrastructure and the project is brought to a point where there's a proof of concept, um, a proof of concept that it could either be taken further to commercialize uh, or that it's ready for a kind of another uh, level of collaboration between um, Caliber and the academic scientists uh, and Merck. Now, one of the nice features actually is if it turns out that things have changed uh, or the Merck is no longer interested, when it reaches that proof of concept, we decide whether we're in or we're out for future work. And if we're out, all the rights are then returned back to Caliber and the academic lab. So they've gained uh, the input and the advancement of the science over a period of, uh, of time, and then they are free to take it elsewhere if things don't work out. So it's a different kind of model than I've heard from others, it's still uh, early days. We're optimistic, but uh, we'll have to wait until the end of the experiment, John. Thank you. Do you foresee a greater role for the pharmaceutical industry in the education and training of physicians for drug development and for leadership in the design and conduct of clinical trials? Um, well, I see that there is the potential for more involvement of the pharmaceutical industry in this kind of education. You know, I've always been struck by the fact um, that uh, doctors uh, have very little knowledge of what goes into inventing a drug or the clinical trials that are used to evaluate a drug or the regulatory um, evaluation uh, that stands behind a drug. So um, physicians typically in their training and later, you know, 
the right prescriptions or they use vaccines and they really don't know how that chemical got into the bottle or how that magic mix uh, became a vaccine. And I know this from my own time in uh, academia that um, the students and trainees uh, really don't learn this. Uh, if you look for this kind of expertise, namely expertise about drug discovery and development inside academia, um, there uh, really isn't very much of it. It resides typically in industry. And uh, so I think that um, the training and education of physicians could benefit from having that expertise uh, be part of their education. We're eager to do that. Um, my company, Merck, has actually uh, developed some educational programs. We have one that began as a collaboration with Yale uh, to address this uh, lack of knowledge of how drugs are invented and discovered. And that was a, has been a very successful, actually wonderful collaboration. Um, it led to the creation of a web-based course in drug discovery and development. It involved over 30 of our uh, physicians and scientists. And it just started um, uh, disseminating from there. It's now available in eight medical schools in the U.S. and eight schools outside the U.S. It's been translated into four languages, Spanish and Mandarin and Turkish and Russian. So it's taken on a life of its own, and I think that's because there is a need that was not being addressed. And similarly, you asked about um, the design of clinical trials and clinical research. Uh, that's been our second um, area of educational endeavor, and we've created a course in that area that is also being launched in U.S. medical schools, and um, we've now heard a lot of interest globally for this course. So I think when there's a kind of common need and there's expertise that resides in industry, we can forge some very nice collaborations that benefit physicians and ultimately will benefit patients. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. In, in the wake of all the regulatory changes, what role, if any, should the pharmaceutical industry play in the continuing medical education of practicing physicians into the future? Well, John, you're right to uh, point out that this is a highly regulated area. Uh, we are, um, we believe that um, CME is very important. Um, it does translate into more knowledgeable physicians and more knowledgeable physicians translates into better care for patients. So we are um, very much aligned with that viewpoint. We have supported uh, CME continuously now for decades and um, continue to do so. Uh, and our role now is uh, very much, um, uh, I would say, uh, it's uh, regulated and it's very clearly defined. And um, we're happy to participate in that way. I would say in general, uh, looking more broadly than CME, uh, but certainly for CME, uh, for us the most appealing thing is to collaborate with academia, to collaborate with uh, those organizations that are creating courses and delivering them whenever that's possible. And that's a preferred route to us than um, uh, merely providing financial support. But, of course, that's not always 
possible under the current guidelines. Thank you. How can professional societies like the American Thoracic Society best promote ethical drug discovery and development and the benefits of our patients and the society as a whole? I'm really glad that you asked me that question. Uh, you know, when you think about what we do, um, we invent new drugs and vaccines, and there are very few organizations on the planet that can do that. Uh, we believe we've had great impact on public health uh, around the world when you look at um, the impact on cardiovascular disease, from um, uh, different approaches, including um, statins, when you look at what's happened um, with AIDS, where the uh, therapeutic interventions, the new drugs, have really stopped a killer epidemic in its tracks in many parts of the world. Uh, I think our endeavor in the pharmaceutical industry is one that really matters in the world. But as I've emphasized throughout, uh, we are reliant on the collaboration with academia, with the kinds of people who make up your membership. And I believe what the journal and what the societies uh, can do is help fulfill the compact that uh, academia has with the public in terms of helping to translate research. So I think to the extent that you can um, express that, clarify the nature and the importance uh, of the collaboration, uh, not only to your membership, but eventually that will get to patients as well. After all, patients become collaborators because they volunteer themselves for our clinical trials that are almost always done in collaboration with academia. Uh, so I think that the journal and the society uh, can uh, speak out about the benefits of R&D in general, the fact that there is um, unmet medical need uh, in the respiratory pulmonary areas. Uh, I think that you can help um, your membership and the public understand that there are benefit risks associated with all medicines. No medicines are perfectly safe. I actually sometimes say that the equation really isn't benefit-risk, it's risk-risk, that there's a risk from your disease and there's a risk from medicines. And um, I think explaining that uh, is something that you can do uh, very well. And then another thing that I think um, could be done where you have a better platform perhaps than we have is in helping to simplify processes and reducing red tape around uh, the interactions, especially in the area of clinical trials. Uh, much of clinical trials is moving outside the U.S. and some of the centers uh, in Europe, in part because other parts of the world can more quickly go through the IRB and other approvals than, um, than uh, the places where traditionally clinical research was done. So it's, uh, you can play a role in making sure that the United States remains competitive in this arena. Michael, th very, thank you very much for your comments today and for spending this time with me. Well, thank you very much. Again, it was an honor and a wonderful opportunity.